Right, well, if you were here last week, or indeed if you watch us online, you'll know that uh, I started last week a new series based on this amazing book by A.W. Tozer called The Pursuit of God. It was written in 1948 and prophetic for its time, and so it is equally, may I suggest, even more so for this time as well. I started the series by reading uh, an excerpt from the preface, um, and maybe I'll do so again, albeit a smaller part of it. And it starts like this, in the hour of all but universal darkness, one cheering gleam appears. Within the fold of conservative Christianity, there are to be found increasing numbers of people whose religious lives are marked by a growing hunger after God himself. They are eager for spiritual realities and will not be put off with words nor will they be content with correct quotes, interpretations of truth. They are a thirst for God, and they will not be satisfied until they have drunk deep, fountain, living water. May that be true for us, I pray, in this place. Because ultimately, as I talked about last week, if we strip down the complexity that us preachers and pastors like to convey, not necessarily on purpose, but certainly we can fall into the trap of trying to impress. We do so as a disservice to you because you see the the simple gospel as we sang earlier is simply this, that Jesus came to restore relationship with God. And you see, our religion is simply that we pursue God and we seek him and his presence. And uh, the Lord had laid on my heart this series to start the year with the way in which we would like to continue, which is pursuing him and him alone. Yes, we love the blessings. Yes, we love everything else. But, but ultimately, it's about him and his presence. And so, as I said last week, we are basing the talks on this book. Uh, thank you, A.W. Tozer, for that. Uh, he's not alive still, by the way. Otherwise, he'd be very old. But uh, uh, I credit him for, for this. You know, he wrote this book on his knees, literally. Literally on his knees. You can get this for free. It's out of copyright. You can download it as a PDF. If you've got Kindle Unlimited, that's free there. I know many of you have purchased it since last week, but it is a wonderful book. And last week, we looked at chapter one, which was following hard after God, and we looked at what it means to pursue God. And and actually, the wonderful Fred, who was leading worship earlier, he sang out that, you know, that God is, is, is seeking us, that that there is that urge within us to pursue God because he places it in us, but then it's our part to play whether we respond to that and seek God. And that's what we looked at last week. Now, what is it this week? Well, the chapter this week is called The Blessedness of Possessing Nothing. The Blessedness of Possessing Nothing. And, um, And I think it's fair to say that in pursuing God, we need to stop pursuing substitutions. Because we're created to pursue, to worship God. And if we're not pursuing and worshiping God, we will do so for something or someone else. So the question for us is not, are you pursuing? It's who are you pursuing and what? And so the challenge that A.W. Tozer presents in this chapter for which I'm going to base my talk on is challenging us to say, who are you pursuing? And um, he starts the chapter with a very famous verse. It's in the 
the Sermon on the Mount. It's called the Beatitudes. And it's the first one that says this in Matthew 5.3. It'll be on the screen. Uh, and if you're on home, it'll be on your screen. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does that mean? Well, let's unpack that together. And in order to do that, let's start at the beginning. You know, when God created man and woman upon this earth, it is interesting to note, I find, that he created the world and pleasant things first before he created them. You notice that? You know, I, I love that about God. He didn't just plonk man and woman on this inhabited rock and say, right, there you go, guys, have some fun. Who's seen that, that uh, movie? Is it Mars with Matt Damon? You know, God could have done that. You know, he landed, if you haven't seen the movie, there's no massive spoiler alert. He goes to Mars. The rest of it. <laughs> it's a red rock. But, you know, in, in the creation, I'd rather think that God's like, right, you know what we're going to do? We're going to create man and woman in our own image, but let's first create an amazing place for them, right? So he spends a few days creating this most, most amazing place. And when it's ready, he goes, right, now for the pinnacle of creation, man and woman, and I, they're going to love this. And you can imagine, God's like, hey, check this out. Look what I've created for you. Wow, look at the birds, the way they fly. Look at the beautiful sunsets. Hey, check this out. You should eat this. It's really tasty. Clearly not the apple. But you can imagine God. He wants them to enjoy the things. And things they were. You know, in the Genesis account, they're simply called things. And you see, these things were external to us and internal to us, deep in the heart of man, was a shrine where God alone was enthroned, just as God has intended. He wanted to bless us with things, but they were always designed to be external to our hearts. God alone was all they possessed. Within was God, without were the beautiful and wonderful things, the things which God created for us to enjoy. But if you know your story in Genesis, this would not last, would it? What happened? And I think in order for us to understand the blessedness of possessing nothing, we need to understand what happened way back when sin entered the world. We need to understand the full impact of the fall. You see, when Adam and Eve disobeyed God, and essentially they proclaimed that they wanted to be like God, that was what it was. We don't need God. Then everything changed. Sin came in and turned God's creation upside down. We often say, don't we, that God's kingdom is an upside-down kingdom. It's only from this perspective. We live in the upside-down kingdom. God's kingdom is the right way up, as he had intended. God was out, and things were in. Where once we pursued God and sought after him, all of a sudden, the things took a seat into the throne of our heart. That's what happened at the fall. And we showed God the door. And in that moment, we went from freedom into bondage. Those things that now entered our hearts, we became in bondage to. And this has not changed thousands of years later. So what does this mean for us today? What's the reality of us today? Well, A.W. Tozer points out that it is not a mere metaphor, but an accurate analysis of our real spiritual trouble. There is within the human fallen heart, he calls it a, a tough root of fallen life whose nature is to possess, always to possess. 
It covets things with a deep and fierce passion. That is the battle we face with our fallen flesh. We're new creations in Christ Jesus, but we still have the flesh, the world, and the enemy that wages against us. You know, and Tozer, I think, makes a very interesting point that he goes on to make that to say that the pronouns, we love pronouns, my and mine, look innocent enough in print, he says, but their constant and universal use is significant. This is interesting. How often do we hear it? How often do we say it? That's mine, my this, my that, mine this. And I think he makes a valid point, which is we got, we got used to that, but underlying that, he said, are verbal symptoms of a deep spiritual disease. I think it's kind of interesting. I don't know about you, but I certainly feel challenged about this. And I think it expresses the real nature, the fallen nature that we battle against. This desire to possess, to have mine, mine, mine. Do we use the sentence, my God, as much as we use my everything else? I know I don't. Hashtag transparent. I want to be relevant. Like that. You know, we put our trust, don't we, in things for our safety. We, we put our hope in things for our future. We put our faith in things for our presence. We, we seek out things to fill the thirst in our hearts. But you see, that is not how God intended our relationship to be with him. Those things were designed, created to be external to us, and in our hearts, only God would be enthroned. Listen, I know there are times when, in my life, I go to things before I go to God. I'll go to a glass of wine before I go and seek God for comfort. Now, I'm not suggesting to you that I have an alcohol problem. I'm normal like you. I enjoy a glass of wine. There's nothing wrong with wine. But I notice, I notice there are times where I'm like, I just need a glass of wine. You know, you're looking at me as if saying, oh, you need one, because I don't do that. <laughs> I'm, trying to, I'm trying to be very self-disclosing to make a, a very valid point that it is very subtle, but it is there. I reckon in the garden, I mean, clearly there wasn't sin, so Adam and Eve wouldn't have felt that way, but... If that were the case, and go with me on this, they would have said, you know what, we just need to be God right now. I mean, that cranberry juice over there that we fermented is very tasty, but we're really just so thirsty. And that's really what we are called to do and to pursue God. And yet the pronouns my and mine have taken over to the degree they've almost camouflaged a reality that we battle with, which is the things that have taken root in our heart. Quite a challenge, isn't it? Let's look at what Jesus talked about, because Jesus referenced this. And we're going to look at Matthew 16, 24 to 25. Why don't we turn together? It'll be in your Bible, obviously. Um, but it'll also be on the screen. And if you're at home, on your screen as well. Yeah, what do I say? I say 24 to 25. Right. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. 
For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Wow, strong words, Jesus. Really? You mean, wait, hold the phone. You mean I've got to take up my cross? I've said this before. You know, isn't the whole point of Christianity, Jesus, that you picked up your cross and you died for me so that I can have my best life and I can feed myself everything I want? Well, no, that's not actually what Jesus said. I think it says here, take up your cross. You mean we've got to die as well? I thought it was just you dying for us so that we wouldn't need to die. Blessed are the poor in spirit. You know, Jesus called it life and self, or as we would say, the self-life, wouldn't we? And uh, to die to it and give it up for Christ's sake is to preserve everything unto life eternal. This is a, a very strange mystery in some respect, but a hidden truth nevertheless. You know, Tozer points out that the blessed one who possesses the kingdom are they who have renounced every external thing and have taken out from their hearts all sense of possessing. Now, we're going to look at the moment about how we do that. They are poor in spirit that we possess nothing. Now, I'm not talking about the title deeds to your home. I'm not talking about the fact that you own a car. There's a difference between that and possessing, which we'll look at in a moment. Now, he says, these blessed poor are no longer slaves to the tyranny of things. That is true. You know, you buy something that's amazing, and, and I mentioned this last week, the new mobile phone comes out a few months later and you need that one. Because all of a sudden, the one you've got that you love so much is terrible. It is the tyranny of things. You know, let's look at a story in the Old Testament. As I mentioned last week, as is frequently true, the New Testament principles of spiritual life find its best illustration in the Old Testament. So we're going to look at a story. It's a story of Abraham and his son Isaac. Who remembers that story? It's a very good story. Shocking story in many ways. But just to bring you up to speed, if you're if you don't understand the story or the context, Abraham was old when Isaac was born. You know, he, God had promised Abraham and Sarah that they, that they would have a son. He was old enough, of course, to be his grandfather. And this boy took a place in his heart that we wouldn't be surprised at. But God actually, in the, in the account, comments on the strength of his affection. And it's not hard to understand why. His son represented for Abraham the very promises of God, of course. It represented the covenant that God had made. It represented the very Messiah that was to come. That's how amazing this boy was. And uh, you can imagine that as he watched this boy grow from boyhood to manhood, the heart of the old man was knit closer and closer with the life of his son. And Tozer points out, as he makes comments to this, till at last the relationship bordered upon the perilous. And it was then that God stepped in as Toza says, to save both father and son from the consequences of an uncleansed love. Kind of interesting. And then we pick it up, therefore, at this point on Genesis 22, verses 1 to 2. It says this, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. You can imagine the agony, right, that Abraham would have felt. What? What? I mean, 
What? What about me, God? I'm old, you know, I've had my time. Not my son. And that doesn't make sense anyway because it's my son. Which means that we're going to see an amazing nation and the Messiah is going to come. Not my son, you've made a mistake, God. And he wrestles the whole night and in the morning he resolves to do. He would offer his son as God had directed him to, but he would then trust God to raise him from the dead. That was how the conclusion he got to. And in fact, if you read in Hebrews, was the solution he found in that dark night. So God let the suffering old man go through it up to the point. And then he says, stop! Stop! Don't harm the boy. It's okay. Never intended you actually kill the boy. I only wanted to remove him from the temple of your heart. I might reign unchallenged. Then heaven opened. This is what happened right after this. Then heaven opened and a voice was heard saying this to him. By myself, this is God speaking, I have sworn, declares the Lord. Because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore and your offspring shall possess the gates of his enemies and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Now, this was a man who was now truly, truly, surrendered, and utterly obedient to God. A man who now possessed nothing. And yet this man poor of spirit was rich indeed. Everything he had was his still to enjoy, wasn't it? We read as we read the story of the amount of cattle he, he had and the, and the servants and all of that stuff. And he still had his son by his side. As Tozer points out, he had everything but possessed nothing. He had everything, the things, but he possessed none of them. None of them took the throne in his heart any longer, only God. Only would he pursue God. He would enjoy the things. And you know, the world would say, look how rich Abraham is. He would only smile to himself. He couldn't explain it to them, but he knew that he owned nothing, that his real treasure was inward and eternal. Can we say that about ourselves? What's your real treasure? Is it God himself and eternity with you? Is that the thing that you pursue? Is that the thing you possess in your heart? So, what holds us back from surrendering our things? Good question, Mark. Let's look at these, shall we? You know, I think it's worth saying, and Toza makes the point, and as I said, I base my talk on this, that because we, the things we cling to feel so natural to us, it is rarely recognized as the danger it possesses, poses us. Because it feels so naturally to cling for the next upgrade, because it feels so natural to cling to be like our neighbors and have the car they have, 
because it feels so natural to listen. Steph and I were watching a, a movie last night. Um, last Glass Onion. Thank you. Who's seen Glass Onion? Great movie. Wow. Oh, Daniel Craig, well done. It's a Knives Out movie. It's the second one. Very good. But anyway, I'm not going to spoil it for you. But there's a very rich billionaire who has his own island, obviously. And he has all, everything he wants. And they all look glam and they have everything. And I will be honest, there was a touch of me that was like, oh. That pull, that affinity pull. Oh, Lord. Come on, Lord. I don't think I went as far as saying, come on, Lord. <laughs> I don't want to do myself a disservice and get you worried about your pastor, but... There was something in me that wanted to cling to that kind of life. It was very attractive. And I had to, we had a, we had a bit of a joke together, didn't we? It was like, oh, come on, let's not go there. Lord, thank you for your blessings. Thank you. You've got more than we need. Lord, we want to pursue you more than that stuff. But it so feels so natural, right? Okay, so what are the things that uh, hold us back from surrendering our things? Number one. We often hindered from, and I, these are from Tozer. We're often hindered from giving up our treasures to the Lord out of fear for their safety. Now, this is especially true when these treasures are loved relatives and friends, aren't they? You know, I have to, oftentimes, I try and step in and control situations with my, with my family because of fear for them, you know? And there's, there's a part of that that's natural. I'm a, I'm a father and a husband, and I'm called by God to you know, to father well and to be a husband. But there is a line you can cross where you start thinking that it all comes down to you and only you can sort things out. I'm glad to see I've got a few nodded heads. And we, 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 we the line is very, um, it's a crafty line because what it actually says is, God, I think I will trust myself more than you on this one. Because the reality is, if I don't surrender them fully to you, I just don't know what you're going to do. And I'd rather not do that. And by the way, this might be for you, a son or a daughter, that you've just got to let go and stop controlling them. And, you know, I have this check sometimes, like, Lord, you know, it says in the Scriptures that we don't want to be um, over-exasperate our children. You know, that's wisdom. We can sometimes so possess them out of a, out of a, out of a motive to protect them that we can step over a line and we say, God, just get out of the way for a moment. I'm going to do this rather than pray about it and seek God on it, you know? But here's the truth of it, guys. And this is what the enemy does not want you to know. Everything is safe which we commit to him. Nothing is really safe which is not so committed to him. There might be relationships in your world right now that right now the Holy Spirit is just a little finger on. You've got to surrender them to me. You need to recognize that I love them as much as I love you. <laughs> that I've got an amazing plans and purposes for them. Number two, we don't realize that what we have comes from him. That's another reason why we can't sometimes surrender things. And our gifts and our talents should be turned over to him. They need to be surrendered to him. You know, we need to recognize that those gifts that we have come from him. I, I remember a particular occasion um, when I was growing up, I was about 15 or 16, and I'd play the piano. Um, I thought I'd be a pop star. <laughs> True. 
even had a stage name. I won't tell you in case you Google it. Marcus Christian. So good, right? Anyway, should I tell this story or not? Why not? We all have a laugh at my expense. Um, Yeah, so I thought, yeah, and I wrote some songs and they weren't too bad, so got got a crew together, band together, hired out a studio space. Oh, yeah, I saved for this. We had a studio, we did it. I did a demo CD, three songs. And I remember playing them, and, and, and at the time I was living at home, well, obviously, we would at 15, 16, and, and my mum would say, you know, I'm just, you know, isn't God great, the gifts he's given you? And I'll be honest, I, rem- I don't know why the Lord brought this to remembrance, probably because it's pertinent for this talk, but uh, there was a part of him that was like, yeah, okay, but look how good I am. <laughs> how incredulous, honestly. I was that barefaced proud, but, but yeah, but look, I've worked hard at this. Yes, of course you have, darling, but. God is so good that he's blessed you with that gift of music and this and the other. Yeah, but, now, that is probably, I know none of you are like that. That is an extreme example to prove a point. That probably in the true humility that everything comes from him, we find ourselves on that, spec, that scale somewhere, don't we? But your talents, your gifts, even the experience that you have comes because of the plans you walk in that God has laid out before you. And it's like, I'm not going to surrender that, that gift to God because he might take it and I might have to do Christian music. I want to be a pop star. And I genuinely thought that. And some of you may be thinking that as well. Maybe something different for you. Maybe it's another gifting, you know, maybe in business or whatever. And you're like, well, if, if I surrender that, I know what's going to happen. He's, he's going to want me to do something else. And I'm really enjoying this right now. Really get into the truth. How many of you are really uncomfortable? No, don't put your hands up. It's fine. I know it's not the seats because they're very comfortable. A little bit wide. Um, Everything is safe which we commit to. And actually the best is when we commit it to him. He has a plan and purpose for us. We need to be willing to surrender those things. Number three, here's another one. We fear that we'll end up lonely and isolated if we fully surrender to God. Because there is this narrative that we've bought into. It's a subtle one that says God is boring and he doesn't want you to have that great thing. So, well, just go back to the Genesis account to find that's not correct. God wants you to have a boring life, and if you surrender, you're going to end up wearing sandals, carry your Bible around all the time. If you do that, there's nothing wrong with that. I'm just saying. I'm going to offend someone, aren't I? I mean, just... My email address is, no, I'm joking, don't email me. But you know the point, there is this narrative that the enemy, I mean, you know, that's, that's the whole point of the lie in the, in the garden. You know, you know, God is holding back some truth from you guys. You know, if you want to be like God, then you've got to eat that apple. He's holding back from you. And we buy that same old truth now. If you fully surrender to God, he's going to hold back everything from you. If you hold on to it and possess it, then you can be in control and you can have a great life because you'll be free. I spoke about this a while ago. Free will and freedom are different things. Just because you have free will doesn't mean you're going to be free in that. <laughs> in fact, if you opposite, listen, if you exercise your free will out of God's best for you, you'll wound up in bondage. You'll wind up in bondage. Right? Listen, just because you're free to make your decisions doesn't mean you've got freedom. 
The only true freedom is when you follow God's plan for your life. That's freedom. That's, that's what's happening here. And so one of the reasons we don't want to give up our stuff and surrender fully is because we feel like we're not going to have freedom to do what we do. You're going to feel more free than you've ever felt. So as I attempt to bring this plane into land, God willing, not a bumpy one, uh, we end with the question, how do we surrender? And Tozer once again gives us three very good points. The first one is this one. Put away all defenses. Make no attempt to excuse ourselves from that, either in our own eyes or before the Lord. Because I I don't need to be prophetic to know this truth, that right now the Holy Spirit, given the number of us in this room, is, is highlighting to some of you in your heart right now what you need to surrender. And your reaction in the flesh is going to be, whoa, Lord, calm. You know, you, these are the reasons why. And I can't do it right now. Next Tuesday, I can. But just give me one more week. Like, is he a mind reader? How did he know? Tozer says this. Let me quote him. Whoever defends himself will have himself for his defense. And he will have no other. But let him come defenseless before the Lord will have for his defender no less than God himself. I'm going to say that again. Whoever defends himself will have himself for his defense, and he will have no other. But let him come defenseless before the Lord, and he will have for his defender no less than God himself. Number two, realize that this is holy business. No careless or casual dealings with the God Almighty. Oh, yeah, Lord, you know what? You're right, I'll surrender it. Come Monday, I didn't really need it. He knows my heart. His grace is sufficient. You know what Paul says? That grace that we receive isn't there to cover over sin. It's not an excuse. Grace is to empower us for right living. That's what grace is. God's grace is sufficient. He doesn't mind. He knows me. He knows me. (laughs) God knows me. I'll say this, but, you know, come Wednesday, I know it'll be difficult. Listen, we are dealing with a holy God. We've become over-familiar familiar with God in some respects. Hear my heart on this. God wants us to run into his arms and sit on his lamp, lap as a child of God. But that doesn't mean we forget that he is enthroned as king of kings and lord of lords. You know? You wouldn't rush into the king's, I was going to say queen, the king's presence here and be stupid, would you? There'd be a certain amount of reverence that comes with the position of being king. And so it is us with us when, we, when we, we come before the holy God set apart. Number three, be specific. It may be he will need, you will need to become more specific. Name the things and the people. Lord, I fully surrender Joe, Sally or whoever it is. I fully surrender my car. I've had that before. I've polished it to an inch of its life. My car. I saw my car now. It, it does need a wash, to be fair. But, and I don't think polishing is bad, because I like a nice gleam. But there is something in our hearts sometimes where we can just make everything so shiny and a treasure in that thing. Why? Because when people see me in that shiny car, I feel like something, and they probably think I'm something. It happens to us. You know, I'm only just telling us how we what goes on in our heart. And so be specific. I'd like to invite the band up as I end. 
You still with me? Good. I know it's some hard stuff, isn't it? But it's real. Thank you, sister. It's real. You know, if you want to walk with Jesus, and let's get down to some real stuff. I mean, when Jesus says, pick up your cross, we have to look at that and say, what does that mean? We don't just read, pick up, we don't read it past and think, well, that doesn't apply to me anymore. Yes, it does. Listen, the benefits and the blessings God wants you to enjoy, this is not a message to say you have to live a life with nothing. It's a message that says God wants you to live a life where you enjoy the things God has and walk in the freedom when you have God right here in the center of your heart. There is a blessing that comes from that. And that's why it's such a battlefield because the enemy knows it. It's like, man, if they fully comprehend this truth, wow, I'm in trouble. If they fully comprehend the truth that they've actually gone and put my and mine in their heart to the degree that it's unhealthy, if they realize that, then I'm in trouble because I haven't got things I can pull them with. I'm excited about this work, quite frankly, because when you start getting thirsty for God and you say, Lord, I want to be thirsty for you, he says, okay, great. Let me show you some of those barriers. These are some of the things that get in the way. You know, it says in the scriptures that God disciplines those that he loves. And discipline means, you know, when you grow a rose bush, you have those trellises in order that the rose bush can grow straight and true and healthy. And that's what discipline means. It's about putting a trellis up in our lives. And this is a trellis talk. This is a trellis talk, you see. And so I want us to stand.